Well, um, every now and then, you come across a tradition or um, some kind of practice that just makes so much sense of the moment, that brings some clarity to the moment that you're in. You just think, how in the world have I never done this before? Or how have I never seen this or, or never heard of this? And I came upon one uh, such obvious and beautiful family tradition through my wife Marla uh, when I first celebrated Christmas with her family years ago now. So on that Christmas morning, we were all gathered around like the, you know, the Christmas tree like usual. Um, and there was a special gift that we had to open first. So I didn't really know what was going on. So I just kind of watched the whole thing unravel. And so a special gift was delivered to her, her father and that gift was in a suspicious shape. It looked about the size and shape of a Bible. And her dad then opened it, and surprise, surprise, right? It was a Bible. And he opened it up, but he didn't just open it up. I mean, he opened it up. He read the Christmas story. And into that moment that we were in, the marvelous, mysterious story of the birth of Christ entered into the atmosphere, so to speak, and hung there, altering our perspective, providing the true narrative for what in the world was really going on while we were gathered around. Now, of course, the, the kids were all antsy, you know, to get to the opening of the presents, and some of the adults were too, uh, I would say. But even so, there hung in the room for a moment the reframing truth, the beautiful reality that Christmas brought the gift of hope. Now, usually the passage that their family read on Christmas morning was from the Gospel of Luke, and now that's what we do um, in my home. We, we read the Gospel of Luke, and so we're going to read this now. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Um, this is the Gospel of Luke. The word gospel means good news. This is the good news about Jesus Christ according to the author Luke. And as we read this, um, please know that this is more than some kind of theological truth. This is more than historical data. It is a gift that comes to us here and now as the Word of God in the sacred moment. It's the gift of God's love to us. So this is what it says, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now here in the Christmas story is the gift of hope and here is the strange counterintuitive way that hope comes to us. First though, what is hope? Right? We, should, we should be as clear as possible on this before we move forward. I mean, it's a word that we see, you know, put on Christmas cards. I mean, it's covered in glitter. The word hope is everywhere, but what does it mean? Well, hope, biblical hope, is not a wish. It's not just some kind of optimism. But it's a deep knowing 
and therefore a waiting on something that will come about. So biblical hope is not, I wish so, I wonder will it be so. It is, I know so, so I wait. So I will wait for it. So the difference is something like, you know, when you're younger saying, oh, uh, I, wish, I wish I were married or I want to be married versus you're engaged, the wedding's in a couple days and now you're waiting for what's imminent. It's coming. Like it's sure it's coming. Or it's kind of like, you know, saying, I wish I could buy a house in the Tri-Valley, right? You know, um, which sometimes seems like a great wish. Um, versus saying, I'm in escrow and the house is coming, right? There's, there's a difference. One is just a wishful thinking. And the other is a deep knowing that something certain is on the way. Now, even better, I think this is going to be a better definition of biblical hope. Hope is knowing that the story God is writing is leading to the renewal of all things, to a beautiful, good, and true future. Hope is knowing that the story God is writing is leading to the renewal of all things, to a beautiful, good, and true future. In the Scriptures at one point, Jesus says, Look, behold, I make all things new. I'm renewing all things. I'm restoring all things. Now, That's a massive hope. And this massive hope comes in small and surprising packages. And though hope comes in small and surprising packages, it's our reflex so often to look for the big, the impressive, right? The spectacular, the grandiose. To look for the big, flashy display of of power, right? Something obvious and some explosive event that says, ah, there's our hope. Look at that. That has everyone's attention. That's our way forward. But hope, hope is actually more like a seed, right? The small, humble little thing that's shoved in the dirt and mostly forgotten, growing unseen, but then someday becomes like a huge oak tree, becomes like a huge redwood tree, full of life. Or you could say hope is something like that first golden light of dawn, that little ambient light on the horizon that glows, and not some huge supernova event that flashes everything bright all of a sudden, but that little bit of glow that says, ah, day has come, and it is coming. It is coming. Now I await for the full light. Hope often comes quietly. Hope comes gently. Hope comes unobtrusively. This is why, by the way, I believe that we love underdog stories so much, right? We're always putting money out for those things perennially, just all the time, underdog stories. Why? Well, I think they resonate with a deep truth about the universe, a deep truth about victory coming in unexpected and humble ways. Christmas is full of humble, small, strange hope. Now, one of the beauties of Christmas is that it doesn't play by our rules. Christmas does not abide by our expectations. I mean, how could it? Christmas, though, we often try to muzzle it or cage it with with our glitter and our our busyness and our liturgies of consumerism is not something that can be tamed. It's It's far too wonderful. It's far too wild. It's far too beautiful. I mean, if Christmas is what the Bible portrays, which is God 
Himself entering into history as a human being, taking on bones and blood and muscle, God in the flesh, God breakable and naked. God with fragile lungs and those tiny, cute little infant toes, you know? God cooing, God crying out for mother's milk. God come to push back the darkness, to conquer and to restore all creation. If it's that, then Christmas is far more than a miracle that happened within history. It is a miracle that changes all of time and transforms all of history. It's a miracle that will bring about cosmic renewal. There's a popular British um, author and historian named Tom Holland, who, by the way, is not a professing Christian. And recently he said something in an interview that just captivated me, uh, and I resonated with deeply. It gets to the mysterious and marvelous heart of Christmas. So here's what um, Holland said. He said, If you're a Christian, you think that the entire fabric of the cosmos was ruptured by this strange singularity. And he's talking about the birth of Christ. You think that the entire fabric of the cosmos was ruptured by this strange singularity where someone who is a God and a man sets everything on its head. And to say it's eh, supernatural is to downplay it. This is a massive singularity at the very heart of things. And if you don't believe that, it seems to me you're not really a confessional Christian. The strangeness of it has to be fundamental to it. There's something so profound in what he's saying there. And don't be intimidated by, you know, the expensive word singularity. By that he means something so intense, so so unique, um, so... Uh, life-changing, so staggeringly significant that it must be dealt with, that we have to reckon with it. Christmas changes everything. Christmas changes everything. God became man. The creator entered into creation. The massive reality-renewing and history-changing thing of Christmas comes in this small, unassuming package. Christmas brings hope in a small, modest way. And here's something for us to take hold of tonight, I believe. Three simple words. Hope comes humbly. Hope comes humbly. You can say hope comes in a down-to-earth kind of way with Christmas, quite literally. This is a beautiful truth. So let's see this humble hope in the story here. So verses 1 through 5, our passage starts out with the words, in those days. Now what days are those? Well, those days are days of brutal oppression. The Roman military political domination machine is in power. It's ruling over the known world. People are oppressed, heavily taxed. They're put to death if they don't worship Caesar as God. Rome is an iron fist and the world is punching bag at this point. Now we get to the name Caesar Augustus, a man that was called the Son of God. He was called the Savior of the world. He brought the famous Pax Romana, which is the Rome or the peace of Rome, extended all across the world. He's a man with a level of power so great that he puts out world-altering decrees as though he were ordering Chick-fil-A, right? Like, yeah, total world domination inside of waffle fries, and I want it now. And then he gets it. 
And here in our passage, it says that he wants to count his subjects. He wants to count the property so that he might exert his authority, so that he might know how to best tax the people and move his military so he can keep it all under his control. So he flexes his power with the census. And he does so, it says, over all the world. All the world. Extreme power and influence in this one guy. Well, then we go on and we hear about a guy named Quirinius, the governor of Syria. Another power player on the scene. Another influencer who would have had a certified Twitter account with hundreds of thousands of followers if if he lived today. And Israel was in his region, the region of Syria. So it was Quirinius who flexed his power to do Caesar's bidding over the region that he was in, which caused Joseph and Mary to be on the move to go to the city of Bethlehem, the city of Joseph's family where the census was going to take place. You had to go back to where you were from. So all that to say, take note. Luke starts out the story with the big names, right? With the power brokers, with the movers and the shakers, the heavy hitters, the influencers. Those who have sway over economies, those who make the armies march, who set policy, who form fashions, who provide bread and circus and spectacle for the masses. But it's not them. It's not these influencers who bring the hope. It's not them who renew the world. They can't bring the hope. They can't redeem the human condition. I mean, I mean think about it. Is anyone going around saying, Hey, Caesar's the reason for the season. No one's saying that. No one's going around going, hey, let's keep Quirinius in Christmas, right? It's just, it's just not happening. They are not our hope. Now, these big names aren't just to locate Jesus in history. Now, they do because this is history. This is fact. This is, this is not myth. But Luke is brilliant and he writes this in such a way as to locate our hope. Our hope is not in the places of worldly power and influence, but the humble and the lowly. Now watch this contrast that that Luke writes in here. It's brilliant. The passage does a hard turn and moves to the humble and lowly. Joseph, a blue-collar guy, calluses on hands, hammer-swinging tradesman and carpenter. Joseph? Joseph who? No one knows his names in the halls of power. Galilee, a place many considered polluted by the presence of too many Gentiles. Who would want to live up north in Galilee? Give me the savvy city. Nazareth, a podunk backwater, uneducated, nowheresville of a town, barely ever making a map. Bethlehem, town of that long ago King David now, just a humble shepherd's village. Who wants to live out there? And of course, Mary. A young peasant girl, pregnant outside of marriage, a social outcast, a pariah. This is the strange cast. These are the lowly places by which hope comes. And then, then we get verse 7 that all but shouts to us, hope comes humbly. It says this, it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. A baby comes into the world in less than ideal circumstances. And this baby is the ultimate embodiment of vulnerability, of dependence, of humility. And this baby comes into the world 
that seems to have no place for him, not even with relatives. The word here in, in Greek for the word for in um, is a guest room, and that's usually in someone's family house. Joseph had family there. There would have been some family with the guest room. They didn't even have room in their guest room for a pregnant woman. As Jesus is born in extreme poverty in a borrowed space among animals, placed in a feeding trough. Each and every moment of the story calls us to lean in and listen. As it says here, right here, is the very opposite of worldly power. The opposite of swagger, the opposite of spectacle, the opposite of strong-arming, of coercion flexing here. Here in this Christmas story is the very picture of humility. Hope comes humbly. The Christmas story shows us this as the great God of the cosmos takes on flesh in the incarnation. The incarnation, that word just means to take on flesh. He becomes small, vulnerable, fragile, breakable, dependent, impoverished. And the one who comes to feed the world is crying out in radical dependence that his mother would feed him. So as I was processing this and knew the direction of this was, was hope, you know, the, the question came, why? Like, why does hope have to come humbly? I mean, God could have done any number of things. Why did he do it this way? And two things I'd like to put forward to consider, two important things on why, why hope comes humbly. And the first is this. Hope comes humbly because our only hope is a loving God. And friends, love in its deepest essence is humble. Love is humble. Love does not bully. Love does not boast. Love does not brag. It does not strong arm. It does not try to wrestle you into submission with, with spectacle or showing its badge. It does not flex, strut, or swagger. Rather, love gives itself to the other. And love is patient. And love is kind. It's, it's not hurried. It values process that cares for people as things move forward. It cares about how things are done, and it moves unhurriedly because it's a deep, long, good work, not just something that comes and then is gone. It comes vulnerably. It comes sacrificially. And so God's love comes humbly into this world because that's who he is. He is love. And so he comes humbly into this world. Love comes humbly into a peasant woman's womb. Love comes humbly to a manger, a feed trough as a cradle. Love comes humbly to an oppressed country. And as this Jesus of Nazareth will grow up, he will pour himself out to touch the leper, to heal the sick, to restore the lame, to love the shunned, and to welcome the shamed. Love comes humbly as the king of creation will then walk steadily towards a Roman cross and die. Love is humble, and our only hope is the love of God that can change our proud hearts to humble ones. Second, hope comes humbly because our Savior must be truly human as well as truly God. The only way to be saved from the predicament that we are in, right, from the 
from the disaster that we are in, which is a broken human condition, which is a distorted heart, is to have a new nature. And so Jesus has to enter as fully human to take upon himself our punishment and give us his true life, give us his righteousness. This means our Savior had to be fully human and fully God. Born of a woman, yet born of heaven. And so God enters into our lowly situation to lift us up, to be who we were made to be. And if you just follow the simple logic of it, look, there is no cross and no resurrection if there is no incarnation, if there is no birth of Jesus. There is no empty tomb if there is no baby placed in the hollow of the manger. There's no Easter if there's no Christmas. And there's no hope. If there's no Christmas. Now that's all good and well, but this isn't just a history lesson. That all doesn't stay in the past. That all isn't just 2,000 years ago. Hope comes humbly now. Today, tonight, Christmas Eve, 2021. Because hope comes into our hearts when we humble ourselves and trust in King Jesus. Hope for us comes when we humbly admit, like, I can't do this. I can't save myself. I can't hold my life together. I can't hold my family together. I can't hold this job together. I can't hold the sermon together. I can't do this. I need someone outside of me. I'm not my own. I trust you, Lord. Or, or maybe this, the simple God-aimed cry, help that's, that's humility in one word, right? Help, have mercy. And just as the king came humbly to a manger, he takes residence in us as humble mangers. The God of the universe, by his spirit, would dwell in us. Like, that's just mind-blowing. That changes everything. Our own proud plans, our self-reliance to hold our lives together, I guarantee you, will fail us. The power brokers of this world, they'll fail us. The influencers, they'll fail us. Political parties and candidates will fail us. Systems and structures, they will fail us. The power of money, the, the almighty dollar, it will fail us. Influential ideologies will fail us. Shiny new tech. It'll fail us. It'll be outmoded. We'll need new stuff quickly. Power, popularity, it fails us. All our followers on social media, it all fails us. It just fails us. All the big, loud, and proud claims of revolution will ultimately fail us. None of these things and their boasting can offer the hope that we need. They, they can't offer the beautiful, the good, and the true future that we are designed for as image bearers of God. But the humility of Christmas comes our great and our glorious hope. Christmas brings the gift of hope, and in Jesus, hope comes humbly. A strange, bizarre, unexpected package, a baby boy, whose birth, life, death, and resurrection would bring about renewal in our hearts through God's love. Hope is knowing that the story God is writing is leading to the renewal of all things, to a beautiful, good, and true future. Jesus is this hope. And without a doubt, I mean, let's be honest, um, our days are in need of a lot of hope, aren't they? 
been a lot of darkness, a lot of frustration, a lot of hurt, a lot of sickness, a lot of fear. And the challenges of these last two years have exposed the inability of this world to offer the hope we need to live well and to love well. But Christmas has come. Christmas has come. So whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever you face, no matter how devoid it seems of help, however hopeless it feels, however abandoned you feel by whatever powers that be, by the influencers, the movers and shakers, the systems, it's okay. And sometimes I think we need to hear that. It's, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Because hope never resided in those things anyway. They were far too thin, too frail to hold the substantive hope of redeeming human beings made in the image of God and restoring everything new. Only God himself could do that. Christmas brings us the gift of hope. And that hope is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. So this year, may we again open this humble present of hope May we re-see all the world through it. And may we humble ourselves and come and adore him. Come and receive our king. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. The fact that you would give us your son to redeem and, and restore. That you would bring hope and joy and peace by your grace to this world through the, the birth, life, and death, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ our King. What great joy we have. What deep gladness. Not a, not a thin, flimsy gladness, but a deep joy and gladness because of what you've done. And I pray over my friends who are here, those who are watching online today, Lord, that you would fill them with that deep gladness, knowing that you are bringing a beautiful and good future towards them because of Christ. We worship you. We praise you. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.